<laughs> yeah, so good to be in his presence. Um, it's a good morning. Liverpool won. The cricket team won. And the Boca won. So I'm... I'm I'm able to minister this morning with a, a heart full of gladness. Amen. Come on. Hallelujah. Family, we have our, our annual conference coming up um, this weekend. Um, we are going to be having our meetings on the Friday night and on the Saturday night. Um, at the Charter House School Hall, you know, opposite, opposite Pappuccino's? Yeah. You know where Pappuccino's is? Come on, you guys yeah, must yeah. know where Pappuccino's is! Especially if you have kids. Uh, we're opposite Pappuccino's. Uh, we're in the facility. We're not too far off. Uh, we have an exciting lineup of ministers and preachers. We have Pastor Neville from Rayma who's coming to minister to us. He's no stranger uh, to the family of Rebirth. Um, he's a minister that speaks mostly to heart. Uh, we also have Pastor Israel, Abiri, who is no stranger to this house. He's ministered for us on a few occasions. He's also, um, um, you know, when we had the expository workshop, uh, many of you were here. Uh, that was just brilliant. He's a minister that speaks mostly to head. Mostly to head. And then you have some no-name preacher just meanders on the peripherals <laughs> okay he'll also be there on the sunday morning um, sunday morning uh, at this venue we are not at charter house on sunday morning as a brief i don't want to see you guys at peppuccinos because there's no meeting there at charter house on sunday okay we're having service here i'll amend the poster i was just lazy to do it a couple of weeks ago I'll amend the post uh, in the week just so that there's no confusion and I don't want to see messages in our team group. Sorry, Pastor. Uh, we have Peppuccino Sunday. We missed the memo. Okay. And thank you so much, um, Pastor Clint, just for briefly touching on, on, on the vision of rebirth. Uh, I just want to let you know um, that you, right now, just by your mere uh, participation uh, with this ministry, and fellowship and just by your mere attendance you are confirming prophetic words you are sitting in a prophetic fulfillment something that was spoken to me at 19 years old by a German lady 19 years old when I was in Bible school had foreseen this day and confirmed over and over and over again even to our, our very wedding day where I had three to four pastors come up to me and say, and say these specific words, there is a church in you. There's a church in you. And then one pastor frightened me at, uh, at C3. And he called Zoe and, and I up and he said, there's churches in you. And I'm like, whoa, <laughs> just managing one church is a stress on its own. But one day, God will plant another Hebrew church and I'm saying this here and now so that when it comes to pass you may believe and that church from the last prophetic words 
will be outside of the borders of South Africa. Outside of the borders of South Africa, I don't know who's going to plant it. Might not be me. Might be Tammy and Livy there on the side. Who knows? <laughs> Might be Granville and Sarisha. But I need everybody to grow. To grow. Fast track your growth in the kingdom of God. Does somebody say Mauritius? <laughs> you know when the Lord calls you to Mauritius or when you hear a call to Hawaii, there's no debating. You know it's the, the word of the Lord. Amen. Family, let's get on to part two of our series on Galatians. Uh, last week, Pastor Clinton did done an amazing job. He spoke about the simplicity of the gospel. And truly the gospel is a simple yet profound message. The uh, Bible speaks about Eve being seduced and tempted from the simplicity of the gospel. Okay, And this morning we will be uh, chatting about the truth of the gospel. And we're in Galatians chapter 3. When you're there, please give me an amen. I'm reading from the New King James uh, translation. Amen. Can I get an amen from my left hand side, Asaplif? Let me know you are with me. And you are not still seeing the book of Leviticus. Galatians chapter 3, reading from verse 1 to 6. <clears throat> o foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified. This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Or are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Have you suffered so many things in vain? If indeed it was in vain, Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. Let's read further. Therefore, know that only those who are of the faith are sons of Abraham. Amen. Amen. There's nothing better I can say than what we've just read. What strong, stern, and sharp words from the Apostle Paul. And as we heard last week, the author of the letter and epistle to the Galatian church is the Apostle Paul. The word apostle means sent one. The place of Galatia, or the people of Galatia, uh, it's important to understand that uh, Paul is addressing a region. He's not addressing a city. So Galatia must be thought of as a province. And Paul took the gospel to various cities in the region of Galatia. Galatians referenced six times in Acts 16, 18, 1 Corinthians 16, Galatians 1, 1 Timothy 4, and 1 Peter. It's, it's known today as modern-day Turkey, more the north-central side. 
Uh, Paul visited this region during his first missionary trip, during his second missionary trip, and during his third missionary trip. The cities he visited in the region of Galatia were Antioch, Lystra, Iconium, and, uh, and Derby. It was between his first trip and his second trip to this region that he wrote this letter. And so by mere fact that he visited the region a second and third time tells us that the warning and letter he gave to the church had its desired effect. And so we know that the purpose of the letter is offered as a course correction to the faith of the churches at Galatia. False teachers have crept in, Judaizers, as we heard last week, they've crept in amongst the churches and they had perverted the gospel of Jesus Christ. These men, these false teachers, taught that it is still necessary for believers, especially those who are Gentile believers, to adhere to certain works uh, of the law in order to be in right standing with God. And so they had conflated the gospel message with the requirements of the law. And scholars tell us that more specifically they were telling the, the Gentile believers and converts that they need to be circumcised. Imagine that. We see that in chapter 5 where Paul tells the church at Galatia, For in Christ Jesus there is neither circumcision no uncircumcision that avails anything, but only faith that works through love. There's nothing more dangerous than a perverted gospel. A gospel that looks like the gospel, sounds like the gospel, feels like the gospel. But when you closely examine that gospel, it actually draws us away from Christ and draws us towards men and works. Any gospel that draws us away from faith in Jesus Christ is a gospel of hell, a message from hell. Any gospel that draws us to a place and position that allows us to put our, our attention on anyone else and anything else other than Christ Jesus himself is a gospel that is brewed in the cauldron of hell. And these false teachers had crept into the church and perverted the faith of the believers at Galatia. The times haven't changed, family. False teachers are more pervasive than they've ever been. They have not ceased and the threat to the church has not ceased. They have just crept in now more subtly. So Paul progressively moves along in his argument and, and letter to the Galatians in his opening address and into the next six chapters and it becomes evident that his fight is not against the false teachers. His issue is that the faith of the believers has been compromised. In other words, an entire ocean of water does not sink the ship. It's the water that gets into the ship that is a threat to the ship. Yeah. It's the water you allow in. There was nothing Paul could do about the false teachers. 
There was nothing he could do about the pressures from without. But what was important to him was what the believers at Galatia had allowed into their belief system. And so the real issue with the Galatian church was not an issue of false teachers amongst them, but was an issue of what they chose to believe. False teachings and false teachers are never the issue. The issue always stems down to what we believe and our faith. Faith will always be an issue for us. Deception is not an issue. Faith is the issue. Sin is not an issue. Faith is the issue. Compromise is an issue of faith. Sin is an issue of faith. Deception is an issue of faith. And as Pastor Clinton mentioned last week, there are, uh, there are several ways to outline the book of, of Galatians in the letter to the Galatians. Firstly, chapters 1 and 2, Paul defends his apostleship because the false teachers, in order to undermine the gospel that Paul had preached, they had to undermine Paul. So Paul, in his official capacity, had to defend his apostleship. That is not called by men or appointed by men, but appointed by God himself. And that the gospel he received was by revelation of Jesus Christ himself. And sometimes if you want to discredit the message, you've got to discredit the messenger. And between chapters 3 and 4, Paul now defends the gospel. He defends the gospel. He explains what the gospel is and what the gospel is not. And in between chapter 5 and 6, Paul defends the Christian lifestyle. In other words, there is a way that a Christian ought to live. But the big idea behind the letter he wrote is this, that the gospel of Jesus Christ is enough. Yes. You cannot improve on it. An attempt to improve on the gospel message only takes away from the message. Come on. Mm. And so Paul has a particular writing style. He departs from his typical way of writing and he opens up his address uh, with the Galatians in a way that he doesn't typically do. Firstly, in his introduction, he usually includes four elements. He identifies the sender, he identifies the recipients, he pronounces a blessing, grace and peace be unto you, and then he usually pronounces or, or issues out some form of thanksgiving. The first three are easily identifiable, but the fourth one is missing. <laughs> Doesn't give any thank yous. He's upset. We find a doxology or what I like to refer to as a gospel statement that he makes. Thanks be to God our Father uh, and our Lord Jesus Christ who has rescued us from this present age. Let's us know from the get-go that we needed rescuing. And then he abruptly gets into his letter with a sharp rebuke who has hindered you who has bewitched you that you have so soon turned away from the gospel secondly we see in his writing style that he develops his argument in a distinct way compared to his other letters in that he typically argued in a didactic fashion he argued 
from a theological point or from a concept and then he translated it into their context and the experience but when we get to the book of Galatians Paul doesn't adopt that style instead he uses first his own experience to illustrate the relationship between the gospel and the law and you'll see that in chapter 1 and in chapter and in chapter 2 you'll also see that he uses the Galatians own experience to argue that justification comes by faith hearing of faith and he uses the experience to bring them to the truth of the scriptures and lastly we see how we how he begins to describe the type of conduct and behavior that is pleasing to God so in other words how he previously wrote was in a deductive fashion and how we address the Galatians now is in an inductive manner and what does it mean it means to write deductively it means to start with the truth to start with a hypothesis or a theory and then translate it and convey it into the experience and what does it mean to share the gospel in an inductive way it means to start with some observations to start with some some experiences that they that they've processed and then bring them to the truth and those are simply the two methods and approaches you can evangelize you have Jesus at the at the well at the Samaritan woman and what does he do he doesn't come up to her and say I am the living waters drink of me and you'll never thirst again no he goes there and he makes a conversation about the water she's drinking and from that experience he leads her to the truth it's like the difference between evangelism and apologetics apologetics is where where evangelists actually start with what you believe what's your worldview and let's see how we can lead you to the truth we also see that lastly Paul's tone in his style of writing is different he's more authoritative he's more stern he's more disappointed and you can hear by the by the tone that he uh, is upset and indignant but his tone and his and and his and his anger show us a couple of things it shows us that the people and believers at Galatia were important to him important for him to such an extent where he was disappointed and he was upset secondly it shows how important the gospel was to him so twice he calls them foolish imagine if your pastor called you foolish <laughs> calls him foolish sarcastically and he asks them a number of rhetorical questions who has bewitched you who put you under a spell and in his sharp tone he did not hesitate to express to them how he felt about the faith they they've compromised and you should not mistake his his tone for a tone of a drill sergeant a commanding drill sergeant no this was a tone of a disappointed father yeah. Galatians 4 he says my little children for whom I've labored in birth again until Christ is formed in you 
My desire is that I will present you as a chaste virgin before him. He saw them as his little flock, his little children. And so his razor-cutting words were actually a demonstration of his love. His letter as sharp and aggressive as his letter was to the believers at Galatia, his letter was actually an intervention of love. Yeah. Love must not only be felt in times where you need encouragement. Yeah, come on. Love must not only be felt when you need support. Yeah. Love needs to be felt even in moments where you are disappointed. Yeah. And I don't hesitate to tell my kids, you've disappointed me. You've disappointed me. I'm not going to brush it under the carpet with sweet words and say, no, no, my baby, you'll do better next time. No, you've disappointed me. You know better. You behave foolishly. Keller tells us that love without truth is sentimentality. It supports and affirms, but it keeps us in denial about our defects. Imagine being an Uber driver, someone gets into the car, the seats are comfortable, the scent is sweet, the Uber driver is friendly and he's smiling you, the ride is pleasant, but he has no navigational skills and he has no idea about the city he's driving in. Speak the truth in love. Yeah. And the truth cuts. And the truth hurts. Proverbs 27 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Yeah. A true friend prizes integrity over relationship. In other words, I'm willing to tell you the truth even if it sacrifices our friendship. Yeah. A true friend wounds you to heal you. A true friend is not, is not that friend who says, Ah, man, these things happen, man. We all sinners. Ah, yeah. No. A friend will get in your face and say, What you did was wrong. You hurt so-and-so. You need to fix that. Some of us need to go back and apologize to some of the friends we took offense for. They told us the truth. Somebody say amen. amen. Somebody say ouch. Yeah. <laughs> amen. Now we come to our, our Bible topic. It's going to be a difficult one for me. Um, and you'll know why in a few seconds. I want to share on four common heresies that are circulating today. Heresies have not died out. They've only been recast in a modern light. And there are many old heresies that have resurfaced, and there are new ones that have, be, have been surfaced and introduced uh, amongst the church and believers. The first one is the prosperity gospel heresy. This message and distortion of the gospel came about during the 1950s when there was a healing um, revival in the United States and the healing ministry really came up to prominence many were being healed and 
somehow amongst God wanting to heal you, God wanted to prosper you, became the sound of the church. And it's not a lie. God does want you to prosper. But it's a little perversion of the truth that makes the bitterest of fruit. Yeah. You know, I always say uh, that you just need one drop of poison in a glass of milk or a bucket of milk just to make that poison. Looks like milk, tastes like milk, usually one drop. And so a little distortion of the gospel message that effect effectively said you give to get. You want to be blessed? You got to give. You want a car? You got to sow a car. <laughs> you know? Name it and claim it. Blab it and grab it. You have power. You, you just by the power of your word, you can speak things into existence. You, you are of the God kind. And then we began to adopt the belief that if God didn't bless us and we weren't materially flourishing, then we must, we must not be in favor with God. And that's the kind of, of message that, that circulates even up to today. The second heresy we have, it's an old one that is, has been repackaged, is Pelagianism. Pelagianism. This simply states that humans aren't sinful by nature. Pelagianism is a set of beliefs that originated with the British monk called Pelagius around AD uh, 345 to 400. He denied that Adam's fall and sin was, was imputed to us. It's a total disregard of Roman, <coughs> Romans chapter 5 and 6. Total disregard. He says sin was not imputed to the rest of humanity and that we're all responsible for our own decisions. He denied the teachings of predestination, of God's sovereignty, and of original sin. And this belief today sounds like this. Everyone sins a little. But most people are good by nature. And I want to give you one sobering line this morning about the truth of the gospel. Good people don't go to heaven. But repentant people do. People who've placed their faith in Jesus Christ. Not good people. The third heresy circulating today, and I've recently seen an, a, a, an associate I know that has adopted this belief, and it's frightening. It's the belief of universalism. It's the belief that everyone goes to heaven. Yeah. Universalism was taught by Oregon around 188 AD and 254 AD. This was declared a heresy by the Council of Constantinople around AD 553. It became a popular teaching again in the 1900s. And uh, if you know your church history, you'll know a minister, a very popular minister, um, who was the head of a Pentecostal church in the States, Azusa's, uh, Azusa Church. It was the fastest growing church in the States. His name was Carlton Pearson. Uh, Carlton Pearson eventually bought into this, this heresy and he now still propagates it. He basically teaches, and universalism basically teaches, that there is no hell. Yeah. It was just an invention of the, the, the church 
and and nobody is going to hell everybody's going to heaven now that has some serious implications uh, but mainly uh, I have a problem with it because it ignores God's justice yeah. it ignores the scriptures in general and so you've just got to be attentive and, and, and I see this associate of mine uh, uh, disregarding the scriptures and saying we are all on a trip to heaven and that is a lie from the pit of hell and uh, and the last uh, common heresy today, uh, can Dino, can you just get my car running while I uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, just get the, get the car ready, okay, is uh, Roman Catholicism. Okay, is that car running? I think. <laughs> now there are one, over 1.3 billion Roman Catholics in the world today. There's more than 50% of Christians. Um, Roman Catholicism, its elements and its teachings can be traced down to Constantine. Um, but the Moody Handbook of Theology and Martin Luther, the great reformer, could trace it back to Pope Gregory the Great. There's Pope Gregory the First as well, he's referred to. Um, so what happened during this period is that the, the, the church had acquired and consolidated a lot of land in, in, in Europe. The church had consolidated a lot of land and it became controlled by the authority of the church and the Pope. And so, and so we later heard of the phrase the Papal States. And that's why today you have the Vatican City. Uh, because the, the, the church and, and the government became amalgamated and, and, and became in a sense one. And Martin Luther, when he referred to Pope Gregory the Great, he referred to, it, to him as the Pied Piper leading the church astray. And so you have elements of believers who, in their teachings, who pray to Mary, who celebrate the, the Mass, who believe in transfixiation of the elements of the table of the Lord. In other words, once they pray for it, it actually becomes the blood and the, and the body of Christ. Elements where you venerate the Pope and that he is seen as as the only representative of Christ in the earth, uh, the Roman Catholic believes that they are the only true church today. Uh, they believe in something, the idea and, uh, and truth of the treasury of merit. In other words, there's a sort of bank of grace. And the merits of Jesus are like stored up. The blessings of Jesus are stored up somewhere and it can be accessed by another Christian, so you can, you can, you can, uh, you know, in a sense, uh, you can pray, you can pray for the blessings of previous saints and to be transferred to you as a as a Christian. And so, there's a number of beliefs where uh, they believe that the Pope has the sole right to alter and adjust Scripture as as he pleases. And so, there's this common heresy today that we've accepted as, ah, it's fine, we're all Christians. Yeah. You know, many streams, we're all going to one ocean, kind of a thing. And there are many heresies floating around. Uh, yesterday, we were at uh, a, a wedding uh, at, a, at the Kingdom Hall. If you know where the Kingdom Hall is, uh, we, uh, Jehovah Witness. Uh, a church and we got in there and my lord I've never met a bunch of friendly people in my life I'm like yo we should get them to train our ushers <laughs> yo, they were hugging me and they were smiling and they you know and I said yo 
man, make me want to join. <laughs> you know? But you have to be sure of what you believe and why you believe it and why there are distinctions in the Church of Christ. Yeah. Okay? Not everything that looks and smells like the gospel is the gospel. Amen. Amen. Should, should I get that call? Yeah. Should I, should I, okay. <laughs> okay. Galatians chapter 3. Uh, let's get into our text uh, this morning. Uh, so we're just going to examine mainly between verses 1 to verses, uh, verses 6. Um, I'm hoping for the sake of time I can get to chapter 8. But um, one thing you will agree with me this morning, if you don't agree with my Bible topic, is that you'll believe that news today is a vital part of our lives. Uh, news is still big business today. People still earn a good living from news. Uh, a lot of people spend the entire lives consuming the news. I can only imagine how much sports news Lerone goes through in a week. You know, news keeps us informed. Uh, news keeps us updated to changing events and issues in our world. Uh, the study in sociology, uh, sociology uh, has a concept of the power elite. Uh, this concept can be defined as a small group of people who control a disproportionate amount of power, wealth, and privilege, and access uh, of information. These are seen as an elite group of people who are decision makers in a political system. Uh, sociology, uh, sociologists have dubbed these people uh, the, the information class, because information is a precious commodity to them that they value. And, and this commodity is more pervasive than it's ever been before. Uh, news is almost accessible everywhere. It's accessible on, on, on network television, there's CNN, there's Fox News that's now available to us, there's South Africans, ENCA, uh, you, you name it, SABC, for those of you still watching, SABC, ETV. <laughs> okay. News now plays 24-7. 24-7. Yeah. Uh, there's, there's news on radio, you can, on your way to work, we have access to the radio. Um, and uh, according to 2022 statistics noted by uh, a publication called The Conversation, there are over uh, 40 commercial uh, radio stations in South Africa and 284 community stations uh, uh, in South Africa. And with the rise of social media and, and the internet, there are millions upon millions of people that now get the news faster. Yeah. Faster than the newspapers can print it. And social media has now become the main source of news online with over 2.4 billion users that now first get the news before it even breaks. Yeah. Over 50% of people with access to the internet get their news before any publication can print the news. Yeah. But what's more important about how fast news travels is how accurate is the information. Yeah. You remember in 2021, um, uh, there was this uh, tale of a woman in Tembisa, uh, the record-breaking 10 babies. Yeah. 
you know and uh, and we had uh, uh, the Pretorian news was the first paper to jump on it and and they ran with the story and it was after a, a, a a, a few days, you know, like, like journalists say, the, it wasn't before the metaphorical ink was even dry on the story that we, we discovered that it was a hoax. Yeah. You know, there was no 10 babies. Medical officials, officials couldn't find or trace the birth, the babies, the mother. And the man's family began to distance himself from the man. And then we heard that the lady was in a psychiatric uh, a hospital. And it was a total journalistic disaster. Yeah. Accuracy is the only attribute of the news that trumps speed in importance. And more importantly, it's not how far the gospel spreads. It's not how fast the gospel spreads. It's more, more importantly, it, it, it's not even how colorful the good news is presented yeah. or how flamboyant the preacher is. It's, it's not even, even more important how, how sophisticated our technology is in the church yeah. or how grand the infrastructure is. And more important than the signs and the wonders and the miracles that may accompany a preacher or that may accompany a ministry or church, what's more important is how accurate is the gospel message. Come on. Amen. Not how fast the gospel spreads, not how colorful it spreads, not how wide it spreads or how fast it spreads, not whether you're online or in person or whether you're on television or not. How accurate is the presentation of the gospel? Because the gospel is a very narrowly defined message. And many of us preachers get it wrong. The gospel is all about Jesus, who he is, what he has done, and why that matters. It's the only message there is that is able to save a soul that would believe. Amen. Its implications are infinitely broad. It's a message that applies to everyone and everything regardless of even what religion or faith you're in. Because there's only one way. And Jesus made the most controversial statements recorded for us in scripture when he said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. That is a very exclusive statement. I am the way. Without me, there's no way of going. I am the truth. Without me, there's no way of knowing. I am the life. Without me, there's no eternal life. There's only one gospel. And it's important that we get its message right. It's a very specific message. And it's easy for us to blur the message. 
and incorrect understanding of the gospel has infinite implications. If we get this message wrong, we get everything wrong. If we get this wrong, we may have well put life and death in the balance. What we understand about the gospel impacts on what we believe. It impacts on how we worship. It impacts on how we pray. It impacts on how we serve. It impacts on everything. It'll even impact on your marriage. It'll even impact on your family. And your community and the world at large. We have a responsibility not only as a church, but you have a responsibility as a believer to make it your life's duty to understand the message of the gospel. Make it your life's duty to study the gospel and its implications. Study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman unashamed. Make it your life's duty to know the gospel because God said in his word, my people perish for a lack of knowledge. You will be accountable for what you know and you will be accountable for what you don't know. As a member of the local church and as a Christian, your duty extends further than just attending church. Your duty extends further than just trusting God for your miracle and trusting God for your financial breakthrough and trusting God to to meet the the needs of your family. Your duty extends further than just dropping a few coins in the offering basket and supporting the local church. Your duty extends further than than loving the pastor and, and loving the church music and songs that we sing. Your duty extends to a place where you need to understand the gospel and share the gospel because the gospel is not something you come to church to hear. The gospel is what you go from church to tell. We have a duty and responsibility to grow in our understanding of the gospel. The problem with us as preachers and and as a church is that we made the gospel out to be something that's only relevant for when you get saved. It was Dick Kaufman who stated, Christians assume that we are saved by the gospel and then we grow by applying biblical principles to our lives in every area of our lives. But we are not just saved by the gospel. We grow by applying the gospel to every area of our lives. We apply it every day to our lives. You cannot divorce the gospel from the Bible. And when we look at Galatians chapter 3 from verses 1 to 5, we have where Paul argues from the Galatians experience. From from verses 6 to 14, he argues from the scriptures. From Genesis 15, uh, we see him cite references to the covenant that Abraham had with God. And so when we get into chapter 3, a theologian, Martin, labels this paragraph as the second rebuke. The first rebuke is found in the opening chapter. And so we see a contrast in chapter 3 of how, how Paul... Paul Paul addresses the believers initially in verse 11 of of chapter 1. He says, I make known to you brethren. 
that the gospel which I preached by me is not according to man. That in chapter 3 verse 1, he calls him foolish Galatians. There's a contrast between him addressing him as brethren and addressing him as foolish. And what's meant by the term foolish, Guzik states that Paul is using, using an ancient Greek term, uh, anutus, which is, carries the idea of someone who can think, but fails to use the power of their perception. In other words, they were not applying what they were taught. And so when we get into this chapter, Paul rebukes the believers at Galatia strongly in the form of six rhetorical questions. The first question, who has believed you, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you crucified? Second question, this only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Second, uh, third question, are you foolish? Fourth question, having begun in the spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Are you now destroying what you've built? Fifth question, have you suffered so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Sixth question, therefore he who supplies the spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Verses 1 to 5 sum up his mood and tone for the entire epistle. In this paragraph, it's important to note that the key motif is that he brings uh, to attention to the Galatians their very own experience. Because sometimes you have to remind people about their experience. Yeah. This is where you come from. Yeah. This is what you've experienced in God. Yeah. How is it now that you've turned aside? Yeah. So firstly, in verse 1, the Bible says that Paul Let's the believers know at Galatia that Christ was clearly portrayed among them. The message that was communicated to the church at Galatia was that Jesus Christ was crucified. Paul had explained that clearly from the scriptures to them. That is the most essential element of the gospel message. Uh, the most essential element of the gospel message is not how you should live. It's not an instruction of, of the Christian's conduct. No. The most essential element to the gospel message is a historical one. What Jesus has done for us on the cross. The gospel is an announcement of a significant historical event before its instructions on how to live in other words it's an indicative before it's an imperative this is what God has done it's a proclamation of what has been done for us before it is any kind of instruction on what we need to do we also see in verses 3 and 5 that Paul brings to their attention the fact that they experienced the Holy Spirit, they've received the Holy Spirit, they were filled and indwelt by the Holy Spirit, they had experienced the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And then we see in verses 4, he says to them, you, you suffered many things for the gospel. Many things you suffered for Christ's sake, is it in vain? 
And then we see in verses 5 where he again brings up to the attention the experience of the Spirit. In other words, the Holy Spirit that signs wonders and miracles amongst, uh, among you that was undeniable. You witnessed it for yourself. How is it that, that you revert and change your message? You've received this by the hearing of faith. Not by any requirement or anything that you needed to do or comply with, with the law. How do you buy into another gospel after you've experienced signs, wonders, and the phenomenon of the Holy Spirit that comes with the new covenant believer? Yeah. Now can you understand why Paul is bewildered? You've experienced the Holy Spirit. You've been persecuted for Christ's sake. Uh, you've, you, you've seen signs and wonders. Christ was taught amongst you as crucified. You've heard the most essential element of the gospel. How is it that you buy into another gospel? I might go off on a tangent here, but at times, personally, I'm also astonished when I witness what God does in our lives. Yeah. Seeing some people who've been delivered from years and decades of drug addiction, souls were saved. Seen some people desperately cry out to God and receive their breakthrough, receive their answers to prayer. I see people come into church and enjoy the fellowship of the saints. I see the smile on their faces. I, I sense the joy in their hearts. They go through the waters of baptism. I see God answer them with jobs that they've cried out for for, for years. God's come through for them. And then it's not long, I don't see them anymore. Yeah. The days go by, we follow up, we reach out, and not a trace. And sometimes I don't know whether to be disappointed, or sad, or angry. But I've had friends that have come along with me, some from even Bible school. We grew up in the house of the Lord. I saw God use them mightily. Some were were mighty prophets, as young as they were, better preachers and teachers than I will ever be. I've seen how God worked in and through their lives. They have testimonies of how God came through for them. Some, some were, came out of extreme poverty. Some came out of struggles that will blow your mind. I've seen even a, a friend of mine come from a place where she was brain damaged, literally brain damaged. And God supernaturally healed her. And today, I look back and I wonder, how is it that you converted to Islam? How is it that you turned away from the gospel? How is it that you turned back into, into a life of debauchery? Today, I stand bewildered. And sometimes I'm led to ask the question, was the gospel of Jesus Christ not enough? Yeah. Was it not enough? The key point in the paragraph is that Paul's developing this argument and, and, and it goes as, it follows 
from this theological argument which which he's trying to communicate to the Galatian church that look this was your experience and this is the truth and he shows this contrast between the faith that we have in Christ and the law of Moses and introduces that contrast for us in chapter 2 verse 16 when he says a man is not justified by the works of the law but by faith in Jesus Christ and then he begins uh, to ask the second question which is in verse 2 he says this only I want to learn from you did you receive the spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith and so when he asks this rhetorical question about the experience of receiving the Holy Spirit uh, he signals its importance by saying this this only I want to learn from you how did you receive the Spirit receiving the Holy Spirit has always been central to Paul's teachings and theology in other words when you come to Christ you must develop a relationship with the Spirit. Yeah. When you come to Christ, you receive the indwelling Spirit. When you come to Christ, you must be baptized into the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God abides in you and works in you. And this becomes the distinctive mark of the new covenant believer. Is that the Holy Spirit now dwells inside of you and He convicts you. Yeah. He teaches you. Yes. He bears his fruit in you, which Paul will explain in Galatians chapter 5. How is it as a new covenant believer that the Holy Spirit does not convict us when we do something wrong? If the Holy Spirit does not convict you when you cheat, steal and lie and commit adultery, and when, you, and when you step out of line, you need to examine whether you are in the faith. Yeah. The Holy Spirit must convict you. What kind of Christian and believer is not subject to the conviction of the Holy Spirit? And this is what Paul's implicitly communicating, that the proof of your salvation is the presence and work of the Holy Spirit in your life. Amen. If you're too free to cuss and swear, Amen. where is the proof of your salvation? Yeah. If you're too free to commit income tax fraud, where is the conviction and presence of the Holy Spirit in your life? Come on. Yeah. Notice question 4, verse 3. Having begun in the spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Now I want you to see that in the beginning of verse 3, he switches from the reference of works of the law to the last part of verse 3 where he replaces it with the flesh. So what, what's significant about this uh, is that when he speaks to the works of the law, he's, he's He's speaking to the ritualistic requirements of the laws of Moses and the activities that's associated with the law. But when he switches to the flesh by stating, have you now become perfect by the flesh? He uses a much broader application of the law. 
what the law essentially is about our works our doings and what he is simply saying here is that we've always had a struggle with this we don't need to be adherents to the law of Moses but even now in this day and age we still struggle with the idea that we need to do things to be justified before God yeah. our doings can never bring us in right standing before God this is the most difficult thing that we struggle with to, about the gospel God is not going to love you any less or more. Yeah. Your ticket to heaven is not based on how many times you attend church, how many scriptures you can quote, mm. and how loved you are by the community of believers. And, and it doesn't matter whether you're Nelson Mandela, or whether you're Intia Suleiman from the gift of the givers, you can even be the friendly neighbor next door. There's nothing that we can do to be justified before God. Yeah. Nothing. Absorb that in this morning. There is nothing, not even your obedience. Yes. 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 Here's the truth about the gospel. Is that it's already been done. Amen. None of our sacrifices, none of our sacrifices can, can justify us and bring us into right standing before, before God. Because our works are like filthy rags, God said. Come on. Filthy rags. Without Christ, our works mean little before Him. Yeah. And we'll never purchase a ticket to His bosom. So, in conclusion, what is the gospel message? The gospel message is how God the Father demonstrates His love and how He exercises His power to save the souls of men from His wrath and from damnation through His Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. I'm going to say that again. The gospel is how the Father demonstrates His love and how He exercises His power to redeem and save the souls of men from his wrath his judgment and damnation and this was accomplished through one perfect man and sacrifice and that was jesus christ Amen. the gospel states that god is our sovereign creator and we depend on him the gospel states that one perfect man had sinned the federal head of humanity He'd sinned and he became unrighteous before God. He disobeyed and his sin was imputed to all of us. So that all men who were born, woman, child, we born and conceived in sin. And now we sin not because of the sins we do. We sin because by nature we are sinners. Yeah. And by nature us being sinners, we are under the same condemnation as Adam. And that's why Jesus said, you must be born again. You must experience a second birth. The gospel is, is the message that Christ, through his birth, through his death, through his resurrection, became the answer to a damned humanity. 
And the only way to escape the wrath to come is that it's required for all men, all men, to repent yeah. of their sin and to turn back to God and to believe in His Son, Jesus Christ. The gospel is not anything we accomplish. The gospel is what God has already accomplished. It's about what God has achieved through His Son. It's not about what we attempt. It's not about what we can do. It's about what God has done. It's about who Jesus is. It's about what He's done. And it's about how those changes everything for each and every single one of us. It was a Spurgeon who was asked to summarize uh, uh, his message uh, of the gospel. And he said, I will do it in four words. Christ died for me. And Carson stated the, the, the following, the Bible is about one story, one single story, not many stories. It's about one main single story. It's the story of the gospel. Yeah. It's the story of the good news. Yes, we can find application in here for business. We can find application in here for marriage. We can find application here for our family and for every area of our life. But don't forget that the meta-narrative of Scripture is the gospel. Yeah. Everything fits into the gospel. The greatest need for the gospel is sin. Sin created the need for the gospel. So the good news actually began with bad news. Bad news of a broken world, of a sinful people. And so this created the need for the gospel, for the good news. Who is the central figure and person of the gospel? It is none other than Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the son of David, the seed of Jesse, the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the person and central figure of the gospel. Who he is and what he's done. Without Jesus, there is no good news. And what is the gift of the gospel? The gift of the gospel is grace. Amen. You know, if we ever cry out to God and say, Lord, be fair, we'd all be exterminated like rodents. That's whenever I come to Him, I'm not saying, Lord, be fair. Say, no, Lord, I need mercy. Yes. I don't deserve it. I need grace. I don't deserve it. Grace shows us His unmerited and undeserved favor and mercy. By right, we are not entitled to grace. We are not entitled to His, His mercy. We're not entitled to anything. Yeah. But He gives us His grace anyway. And that's the beauty of the gospel is that we are an undeserving people. We deserve to go to hell. And there's a heresy floating around that says, you are enough. No, we will never be enough. The gospel is enough. What is the appropriate response to the gospel? Only two things it requires. Repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, when he says repent, change your mind about God. Change your mind about your sin. Change your, your mind about your lifestyle. 
and about the direction and course of your life and turn back to God. Amen. Believe, believe in Christ. Don't believe in a system of belief. Don't believe in, in, in a system of, of denominational church or, 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 that, or any kind of affiliation to uh, a denominational church or adherence to a code of ethics or to a set of rules. You have to place your faith in Christ yes. and Him alone. In everything he said, you have to show a commitment to who he is and what he's taught. What does the gospel accomplish? Justification. Everybody say justification. justification. When we repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, the first thing he does is that he justifies us. Westminster's larger catechism states that justification is an act of God's free grace wherein he pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight only because of the righteousness of Christ that he imputes to us and we receive this by faith alone in Jesus Christ. Justification becomes the legal act of God declaring that the guilty is now innocent and in justification God pardons us as sinners he puts us in right standing before him and he imputes the righteousness of Christ in other words you can come up for an altar call and cry snot and tears and give your heart to Jesus but if you did not sincerely repent and believe on him and if he did not declare you justified you will walk away unchanged and once he has justified us the process of sanctification begins now you have the fruits of having been justified showing up in your life now he sets you apart the Holy Ghost works in your life and now once before you could not read your Bible. You didn't enjoy reading your Bible. You enjoyed praying. You didn't enjoy church. You didn't enjoy praise and worship. Now something's changed. You've changed. Now all of a sudden you're on fire for the Messiah. Now all of a sudden you have a joy in reading and studying the Word of God. Now it's not a problem and an issue to give. And now it's not a problem to share the gospel. Because you've been justified and God's begun the process of sanctification in your life where he starts to renew our minds, where he starts to change our habits, where he starts to change our attitudes. And now you can boldly say, I was blind, but now I see. Yeah. What does the gospel have in mind? The gospel has eternity in mind. Judgment and our glorification. In other words, we will all stand before God one day. And as someone once said, in the choir of life, it's easy, easy to fake the words. But one day we will all sing solo before God. Yeah. Nobody's going to stand with you. And glorification now is where he changes our bodies. From a corruptible state into an incorruptible state. 
where he resurrects us from the dead that day is coming with the sound of a, of a, of a trumpet and, a, and the voice of an archangel the dead in Christ will rise first and then what's what's mortal will put on immortality and I'm saying Lord give me a six-pack in the afterlife <laughs> and in conclusion again what is the end of the gospel all roads lead back to him it's by grace alone it's through faith alone and it's in Christ alone Paul said in Galatians 1 verse 8 and 9 he says if anybody else comes with another gospel he said in fact it's not even another gospel he says let him be accursed the Greek word used for a curse is the strongest possible Greek word that Paul could find anathema he says in other words if anybody else comes with the perverted message let him be damned yeah. say let the curse of God fall upon him he says I don't care if it's an angel that comes into the house of, of the Lord with glorious but the glorious manifestation of his of, of his power and splendor and majesty and, and and if he comes with the new improved version of the gospel let that angel be cursed and death that's how precious the message of the gospel is amen, amen. can we stand family Let me close eyes. Lord, we want to thank you for the good news of your Son, Jesus Christ. Help us to never stray from the message of the gospel. Help us to grow in the grace of the message of the gospel. Help us to be excited about this good news again. That Christ has died for a sinner like me, of whom I am chief. I pray, Lord, that in the coming days and weeks, as we read through the book of Galatians, as we study through the book of Galatians, I pray that we will develop more of an appreciation for what you've done. Yes, and nothing we do for you, even if we sell houses and cars to give it to you, will ever amount to the sacrifice of your son. Hallelujah. It's already been done it's finished yes we thank you lord for your presence that works in us your holy spirit that sanctifies us renews our mind and brings us back to you i pray lord for every family represented here your blessing your peace your prosperity throughout this week in the mighty name of jesus and the church of god says amen amen, amen. god bless you family Amen. Have a blessed Sunday. I speak seven color lunch over your lives today. I speak roast potatoes, roast chicken. <laughs> I didn't say it's a prosperity gospel. <laughs>